Welcome to this podcast by Young China Watchers. We're a global network of young professionals interested in China. Back in non-COVID days, we hosted events with China experts in our 10 chapters around the world. It took a while for us to figure out how we could bring the same quality content to our audience in lockdown, but I'm glad to say our teams have been hard at work organizing these amazing webinars that you can access from anywhere. My name is Sam Columby, and for this podcast episode, I chose to share the recording of one of those webinars, a discussion on the outcome of the so-called Lianghui, or two sessions, the highest level of political dialogue in China. Our global director, Su An Tei, invited Dr. Victor Xi to talk about the key results from this summit, held at the end of May. Victor is a professor at UC San Diego and an expert in the political economy of China. For part one of this recording, I gathered his insights on China's macroeconomic status. We pick up right after Suan asked Victor to present his three main takeaways. First of all, thank you, Suan, uh, Rafael, and Sam for inviting me. It's a real honor to be speaking to this group finally, I would say. <laughs> I've uh, long heard uh, of all the interesting activities that you guys have done, uh, and I'm very happy to take part in it. Anyway, back to uh, your question. Three things really stuck out to me of the NPC sessions, and I'll talk about the more, I guess, trivial ones before we, we talk about Hong Kong, I guess, <laughs> that being the most serious issue. The first two are really just economic observations. So, so the first one is that obviously the NBC did not announce a growth target. It did announce a deficit target that was substantially higher than in previous years. But if you look at where the deficit spending of the Chinese government this year is going to be targeted at, contrary to you know, what the U.S., what Europe uh, have done, China will not have a demand-side stimulus. It will not be $600 checks you know, every week going to unemployed Chinese people. Instead, it will be a supply-side-focused uh, mini-stimulus, still a few trillion renminbi, that is especially focused on tech investment. So one part of it will be focused on tech investment in trying to get China to catch up further in IT technologies, even though China already is sort of ahead of the curve in, in terms of 5G but potentially a lot of that money plowing into chip production, chip research and development, uh, which is currently a weaker link in China's industrial policies. The problem with that is that if you look at the uh, income and consumption numbers, both in the U.S. and in China, and also in Europe and Japan, is that we're seeing household income falling across the board in all of these continents. Consumption has declined pretty significantly by 14% in April. And so the demand for Chinese produced goods is going to weaken regardless. But nonetheless, China is pushing ahead in resuming production across as many factories as possible. So there's a whole range of fiscal incentives to get the factories to start producing. That means the whole world is going to be flooded with cheap Chinese goods, which will be made even cheaper with the recent devaluation of the renminbi. Uh, so I think that has implication not just in the relationship between U.S. and China, but also the trade balance between China and Japan, China and Europe, China and India, China and Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera. My second observation is that uh, within China, the deficit is, you know, is going to get worse, you know, and, and that's in a sense expected. But the fiscal situation at the local level, so below the central level, was already extremely poor. And this year, if you look at the first three months of this year, local level fiscal revenue just 
collapse, basically. I think the decline was like 30 or 40%. The central government has rolled out some policies, uh, A, to try to guarantee the income of civil servants at the local level. I mean, but if you think about it, the fact that they need to have a policy like that means that a lot of civil servants at the local level were not getting paid what they were supposed to be paid. So certainly at the local level, the fiscal balance and the fiscal expenditure is, is really not in great shape. There is now some transfer payments. The central government is leaving behind some of the tax revenue that in previous year they would have collected uh, for central expenditure. They're leaving some of this uh, tax revenue at the local level in order to meet very basic salaries, right? So all this uh, previous office expenditures, building new buildings, bonuses, and so on and so forth, I expect a lot of that to go away at the local level. You're going to have some pretty unhappy uh, civil servants in China, especially if demand for Chinese goods around the world do not pick up, which I don't expect it to pick up. One thing that I find very strange is that there are 600 million Chinese, so you know, close to half the population of China, with income of 1,000 renminbi or less. And so an obvious way to stimulate demand for Chinese goods is to just massively give money to Chinese people, to Chinese households, so that they can spend money and buy more of the goods that are produced in China. But that is not going to be the policies of the Chinese government. Uh, and I think this is going to be a problem for the whole world. I wanted to go back a little bit on uh, what is largely supply-side stimulus, uh, as you have mentioned. Are there any blind spots then? I mean, interesting that you say um, no stimulus checks, revenue tightening uh, at the local level. That's always very tough to meet targets uh, that are being set on employment and yet, you know, not having enough budget. Will there be dissatisfaction at the local level? You know, it's not a perfect solution, <laughs> what the Chinese government is doing. That It will cause uh, pain for a large swaths of the population, right? So if you look at a whole range of policies, they're aimed at preventing the worst outcomes for the majority of the population. It's like, well, if people don't starve, if people have a roof over their head, if people have some semblance of a job, they're going to be happy, like they're going to be fine. The problem, of course, is in the short term, that is fine. But if, um, you know, as I fear that this is going to be a prolonged global recession, the weakness in global demand, the weakness of foreign invested enterprises production, the weakness of even Chinese companies production in China will continue for years to come, then these temporary measures are not going to be effective in the medium term. The regime, of course, probably anticipate this to some extent, but what they're thinking is that the control over social media, the repressive apparatus, the surveillance are good enough so that even when a sizable number of people are unhappy, they start to post negative things online, you know, it's going to be censored. They can identify the people who are really, really unhappy and arrest them. But one implication of that is that they will have to arrest a large number of people if the economic recession continues for another year. One year from now, if the economy is still not picking up, I think the central government will have to think more about a demand-side stimulus. A follow-up question we have from Andrew Collier. Are we also seeing infrastructure spending through local government bonds and private capital, along with the focus on tech? The way that I understand the stimulus investment money is that there will be some going toward infrastructure. A lot of it is planned already. They're just accelerating. It's like, you know, for example, like the Great Bay Area. 
they're going to build like a tunnel next to this bridge that already exists uh, that connects, you know, uh, Hong Kong with Zhuhai. There's going to be some kind of tunnel also. There'll be extra airports in a few cities, even though no one's flying, <laughs> you know, uh, that kind of stuff. But then a third to a half of the new investment money will be geared toward technology. But of course, as you know, some of the so-called tech money will also be used for infrastructure because you need your biotech city, you need your, you know, whatever, this dream cities for this and that tech. But nonetheless, the scale is not that huge relative to the 100 trillion renminbi uh, size economy of China. Thanks, Victor. Um, there are a couple of Hong Kong questions. Um, one is from Idan Lee. One potential U.S. punitive sanction is to restrict HKMA access to the Fed facility, which would spell the end of the Hong Kong dollar peg. And it obviously hurt U.S. businesses as well as Chinese and Hong Kong interests. Do you think this scenario is likely? So the swaps between HKMA and the Fed, it depends on how much of it HKMA has used. Uh, and I haven't seen the data, uh, but I suspect it's not that much so far, just because the HKMA nominally has like three, $400 billion on its reserve. But the question is how much of that reserves are real? Uh, so you know, uh, and that maybe Sue Ann has some insight on that. I, I believe there are all these swaps that are happening that both the PBOC and HKMA have done. And I think almost certainly the HKMA did swaps with the PBOC and basically created Hong Kong dollar to give to the PBOC so that PBOC can, can get some of it and claim it as FX reserve or something like that. Who knows, right? And also as an entity holding all these U.S. treasuries, the HKMA might be able to swap those or repo those bonds, U.S. treasuries that they hold, maybe even with private counterparties for cash. So something like that. So I think the larger issue is that China has increased its international borrowing through Hong Kong to a tremendous degree uh, since 2015. By my calculation, the increase in borrowing since 2015, uh, which in total was at one trillion U.S. dollars, probably 60 to 70 percent of that went through Hong Kong. You know, well, why does China need to borrow all this money? And and indeed, that's that's very puzzling because uh, China runs a current account surplus, so in theory, it doesn't need to borrow any money. In fact, it should be a net provider of capital to the rest of the world. And indeed, it does lend a lot of money to the rest of the world, you know, through One Belt, One Road projects. But it turns out that uh, much of the money for One Belt, One Road comes from Chinese borrowing from international financial institutions, mainly private financial institutions globally. And the way that it works is interbank channels. So, so to me, the central bank swaps between HKMA and the Fed is not nearly as important as, you know, Hong Kong domiciled banks borrowing in the international interbank market in huge amount. Should the banks of the world have a conversation in terms of how big their total exposure to China should be, I think there should be a conversation like that, right? Because China ultimately is still an EM country, but the way that it's borrowing is truly massive, right? So by my, again, by my calculation, if you include Hong Kong and mainland China together, China has borrowed a net of $2.6 trillion from the rest of the world as of the beginning of this year of 2020, 
it is often claimed that China has a lot of international asset also to, to offset the liabilities that they have. But if you look at their assets, a lot of it, of course, in the reserve is U.S. Treasuries, but a lot of it is just Hong Kong-based assets, which I think should not count because, you know, after all, Hong Kong is a part of China, right, as, as was forcefully uh, asserted. Uh, so once you net out the Hong Kong stuff, you net out the Macau stuff, you net out maybe some of the Singaporean stuff, um, which is just Chinese companies lending to each other, basically. My contention is you really don't have a lot of true international assets. And the stuff that you do have are really loans to developing countries that have no ability of repaying them. And if that's the case, should banks around the world continue to lend to Chinese entities? And I think the level right now is sort of reasonable, you know, 2.6 trillion. But if China wanted to go up to 3.6 trillion, $4 trillion, should there be some kind of limit or constraint on that? I, I think a conversation on that is worthwhile. I think that's a very interesting question. It's obviously something that both sides need to look into, at least on you know the international banks and FI side. Um, what is the true extent of exposure to China? But on, on the other side, I wanted to ask, based on your conversations with say, PBOC officials, surely they've anticipated this, even if not with the suggestions of limited access, but surely they have anticipated what it would be if they were cut off even through via Hong Kong, for example. Have you heard anything from PBOC, like unofficially, you know, what the concerns are? Do they truly understand their own exposure? I think they do. I don't have any like recent insights, but but one thing that I, I know from 2015 was that the PBOC increased their borrowing from the rest of the world through Hong Kong because they had to. So the, the higher ups, you know, whether it be Liu He or Xi Jinping himself, saw the collapse of China's foreign exchange reserve and basically ordered the technocrats and the PBLC to reverse that. Do whatever it takes, make sure we have $3 trillion or whatever the amount. And the PBLC, you know, scrambled around. It's like, well, what, what can we do to possibly make it happen? And the one thing that they came up with, which works immediately, was to increase borrowing by a huge amount, especially through Hong Kong. In the past few months, what you've seen is that there has been repayment of some of this international liability. So, so the growth rates of China's external borrowing has slowed. But to me, I think for, for them to repay uh, even a significant portion of that would be extremely difficult because the entities that have conducted the borrowing are either highly illiquid or they wouldn't want to repay them. For China Development Bank, for example, they have issued huge amount of bonds, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in bonds internationally to finance One Belt, One Road projects. But the debtors for those projects in the middle of a global recession cannot possibly repay those debts. And so where is uh, China Development Bank and Exim Bank of China going to get the money to repay international creditors? They cannot, right? So they can only roll these debt forward. And so this debt is going to increase slowly. A lot of the interbank loans is in the similar situation. Some of the large industrial SOEs may be able to re repay their debt, but some of the large commodities ones, you know, they're mainly importers. So they, you know, where are they going to get the dollars to repay their debt? So I don't think the external debt will decrease. 
And if there's um, another bout of capital flight, which there might be as Chinese investors pull out the money from Hong Kong, which may create a suction effect that pulls money out of China, can the PBOC do the same trick again and borrow massively overseas to counteract the outflows? And even if they can, whether that's desirable for the rest of the world, I think you know, there needs to be a conversation. Um, just very, very quickly on the debt issue. Um, somebody asked, so CBD and Mofcom put out a policy to support distressed so-called high-quality BRI projects. Any developments on that front? And then, you know, this is obviously all that chatter about debt forgiveness uh, for emerging uh, economies. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's going to bode well, uh, given your explanation of uh, potential capital flight. Yeah. And <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so I think that's a very tricky issue for the Chinese government going forward. It's because, you know, of course, if the loan is denominated in renminbi, right? So if these one belt, one road loans are denominated in renminbi, no problem. I mean, the PBOC can always print more money. They can forgive those debt, you know, no problem. But the, my understanding is that the vast majority of these loans are not denominated in renminbi. They're denominated in USD or some other foreign currency, this creates a huge problem for the Chinese monetary authorities because if they forgive those loans, they still have to repay their international creditors who lend Chinese banks the money in the first place to lend to these BRI entities. And there will be no cash flows with which to do that except from the foreign exchange reserve, which they don't want to do because that depletes the foreign exchange reserve, or with additional borrowing from the rest of the world. So these are the only two sources of foreign currency. When you're like, well, wait a minute, what about current account surpluses? Well, the mystery of China's trade is that despite the fact that China runs like these 30, 40 billion per month trade surplus, the money does not show up in China at all. Right, So if you look at the safe data on the flows of money into and out of China, money is not showing up, you know, or it's showing up in a much smaller scale than the actual trade surplus. There's a variety of reasons for that. But I think the main reason is because a lot of exporters, they don't want to leave the money in mainland China. And so they try to get paid offshore as much as possible. And this tendency is even stronger today because of the devaluation that we've seen recently of the renminbi. So the best they can do is what they do in China, which is to pretend the loan is still in good shape and keep on rolling it over. The problem is that if they get rolled over, they're not actually generating interest income for the Chinese banks that lend the money in the first place. So there's still net negative cash flows, right? Because the Chinese banks, they still have to pay interest to the foreign creditors, but at the same time, so they're not receiving cash flows from their own debtors. And so basically, in the overall balance of payment, somehow the Chinese government will have to find the FX net inflows to subsidize this net outflows uh, that's happening in the financial account. Thanks, Victor. So a bit concerning, definitely. Uh, especially given the margin compression environment that we're in, not to mention negative rates. There was a question on the continued, the potential outperformance of the Asia market because China has recovered more strongly uh, or earlier than, say, Hong Kong and, and the rest of the markets. What is your view on that? Okay, so so this is my comments about Asia and all the EM shares, right? So it's like, you would think that given how dismal the U.S. has performed in COVID-19 in terms of controlling the disease, that U.S. equity would have sold off like crazy. And it did in March. 
but it has basically regained almost all, all of the losses. It's because the US dollar is a globally accepted and freely circulated currency. And when the US monetary authorities uh, displayed a willingness and ability to massively ease in order to support the US economy, then equities came back. And so far, China has not been willing or maybe able to do that. The PBOC is really afraid that if they were to massively print money, then some of it will leak out of China, thus depleting the foreign exchange reserve. So this, the fact that the renminbi is not a freely circulating currency and freely tradable currency, really, it turns out to be a weakness in terms of China's desire to be a dominant country in the world, right? So I would argue that until the renminbi can be freely traded, China really cannot achieve this dominance that it so desires from the U.S. We'll leave the discussion there and continue in the next episode, where Victor talks about what's arguably the most remarkable decision to come out of the two sessions the central government taking the initiative on a national security law for Hong Kong. It's, it's very bad. It's as bad as most of us had feared. That's for part two in the next episode of this podcast. The full recording of Victor Xi's webinar is available on our website, youngchinawatchers.com. There, you'll also find more webinars available for replay, as well as interviews with many China experts and all the information you need on upcoming events. Victor teaches at the UC San Diego School of Global Strategy and Policy, which offers a great China studies program, so be sure to check that out if you're deciding where to go next. My name is Sam Colomby. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>